Hey folks, Andy Patton here. The Zags took care of business against North Alabama to complete their non-conference slate. We're going to talk all about this afternoon's game before discussing the unfortunate news that Gonzaga will not face the University of San Diego on Thursday due to COVID. All right here on the Locked On Zags podcast. Don't go away. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, ready to take you through another season of WCC Gonzaga hoops. That's right. The non-conference slate is officially in the books for Gonzaga. They finished... The non-conference season by, of course, defeating North Alabama on Tuesday afternoon, 2 p.m. start. So a little bit quieter in the kennel, as you might have expected. Still a lot to talk about in this game. I want to thank all of you who do make this podcast your first listen of the day. And those of you who also check the show out on YouTube, it is sincerely appreciated. You can go to Locked On Zags on YouTube, uh, search it there, hit that subscribe button if you have not already. I sincerely appreciate it. All right, so North Alabama Zags took care of business in this one. It started out a little bit tenuous. North Alabama hit, I think, four of their first seven threes before going something like one for 15, I believe, for the rest of the game. Gonzaga's defense clamped up, and North Alabama just couldn't quite find a way to hang tough, and the Zags ended up cruising to a pretty easy victory. The first thing that stood out in this game was the balance. We've talked so much about how deep this Gonzaga team is. Yeah, they play an eight-man rotation, and really all of those guys are capable of stepping up and leading this team day in and day out. And that was really, really the case here on Tuesday afternoon. They were led, technically led, in scoring by Julian Strother, who had 15, but Rasir Bolton had 14, Nolan Hickman had 13, Drew Timmy had 12, Anton Watson had 10, Chet Holmgren had 9, and Hunter Salas had 8. If we had, a, If Hunter Salas hit one of those threes... He took two threes in this game. If he hit one of them, we would have gone 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, and 9 for Gonzaga's seven leading scores. Truly remarkable, balanced, outstanding performance. It makes this team so, so difficult to game plan for. We've seen teams attack this team multiple different ways. And there have been some successes, obviously. Gonzaga has two losses on the season, has been challenged by teams that Maybe you wouldn't have expected to hang tough with them earlier in the year. So it's not like they're impenetrable. It is not like they are unbeatable. But they have proven that because they have so much depth, so many different players who are capable of stepping up, that they're really hard to game plan against. How do you plan to stop Drew Timmy without allowing Chet Holmgren to do more offensively? How do you stop their outside shooting without allowing them to make easier entry passes to Drew Timmy? It's just a really difficult recipe. This was a game where Andrew Nembhard did not have a great offensive performance. A Bob Cousy Award finalist was not one of Gonzaga's seven leading scorers in a game where they scored over 90 points. That's how ridiculous this team is. I do want to call out a couple of outstanding individual performances before we take a look in the second segment at my five keys to the game and how they ended up shaking out. First, we got to talk Anton Watson. Feels like we're leading with Anton Watson a lot these days for very obvious reasons. In this one, he did record his first career double-double. It surprised me when I heard the broadcasters say that this was his first one. I thought he had gotten one early in the year, but 10 rebounds is tough. 
especially when you're the third big coming off the bench. Still a remarkable game from him. He finished with 10 points, 10 rebounds, two assists, two steals, and a block. He actually didn't shoot it all that well in this one. He's only four for 10 from the field and only two from five, two of five, excuse me, from the free throw line, but still an outstanding performance from him. We've talked at length on this show about his aggression on offense, how much different that is than what he looked like previously in the last two seasons where he was much more tentative with the basketball, really only looked to, he, he moved well without the basketball his first two years, but only really took open lay-ins, wasn't actively looking to drive to the basket when he had the basketball, wasn't looking to take a lot of jumpers or outside shots. That has not been the case this season. We knew he was great defensively. He's only gotten better on that end of the floor, but the improvements he has made offensively have been absolutely staggering. And right now he's one of the best players on this roster and continues to show it night in and night out. Uh, Julian Strother, an outstanding game from him as well. He had 12 in the first half, only three in the second half, but part of that was just the Zags emptied the bench fairly early in this one. A six of 10 shooting, only one for four from the three-point line would be the only kind of complaint, I suppose, for Strother, but we know he's not going to be, he's, he's going to have games like this. One for four is by no means terrible. He certainly didn't, didn't significantly impact their ability to win this basketball game by missing a couple of threes. What he has gotten better at, and it was something that I believe Richard Fox mentioned in a previous broadcast, the next evolution for Julian, at least offensively, is to start getting better at finishing through contact and attempting to draw contact. He's great at finishing around the rim. He's good at finishing in transition. He's a good three-point shooter, but he hasn't quite developed that that ability to actually get contact and get to the free throw line. That's kind of the next step for him. And in this game, he only took three free throws, so it wasn't elite, but you saw him doing better at the ref swallowed their whistle in this one a lot. And it looked to me like Julian had the game plan to come in, try to get to the line more, at least try to get to the basket. He finished around the rim really well in this game. So it was nice to see him kind of step out and do a little bit more of that. This was, I think, a good game to do that because Gonzaga was probably never really in serious jeopardy of losing this game, but they were playing a team that was good defensively. So it was nice to see him get a little bit more outside of his comfort zone and try to do some different things offensively. And then the last thing, or the next thing, excuse me, Gonzaga took really good care of the basketball in this game. They finished with nine turnovers, four in the first half, five in the second half. Here's the thing though. Drew Timmy had four of those turnovers. Hunter Salas, a freshman who still makes freshman mistakes. We'll talk about him more in the second segment. He had four turnovers. The last turnover was Matthew Lang in garbage time. That is it. So that means that your primary ball handlers, Nolan Hickman, Andrew Nembhard, Rasir Bolton, they combined for zero turnovers. That means Chet Holmgren and Anton Watson, who have had issues turning the ball over as big men, combined for zero turnovers. That is excellent. Against a team, this is an important note, against a team that had the seventh best non-steal turnover rate in the country coming into this game. Yes, they're undersized. Yes, their their talent level doesn't match up with Gonzaga's. But this team, who has played good teams, they played Auburn, they played Iona, Iona, they've played Central Florida, they played some decent squads, was one of the best teams in the country at forcing opposing teams into turning over the basketball. And Gonzaga, who has had significant, well-documented issues turning the basketball over this season, came out and avoided it completely. Timmy made a couple dumb mistakes. He tried to make a pass to Bolton that didn't work. Salas, his first play of the game, tried to make an entry pass to Drew Timmy that was just nowhere close to Drew Timmy. Those things happen. Very few teams, if ever, are going to go zero turnovers in a game. So a couple of them are to be expected. Timmy certainly needs to work on taking a little better care of the basketball. That has been an issue for him all season long. 
you'd like to see it improve, especially for a guy who has NBA aspirations and will be an NBA player without a doubt. But you'd like to see him take a little better care of the basketball. You look at players like DeMontis Sabonis, who are relied upon to handle the basketball significantly. You need to be able to to not turn it over. If you cough it up too much at the next level, you're not going to get a lot of playing time. So that's something that he's going to need to work on. Hunter Salas, like I said, freshman, freshman mistakes, obviously something he needs to clear up. I don't want to just completely blow past it like it's nothing. Four turnovers for the amount of minutes he played is not great, and he does need to work on it. And you bet that Mark Few is going to have him watching tape of those turnovers and discussing what he needs to do to improve. But to have your two primary point guards and your two big men who'd been struggling with turnovers all combined to have zero turnovers in a game is outstanding. I wanted to focus a little bit on the point guards, Nolan Hickman and Andrew Nemhart as well. Uh, Nemhart did not have a great scoring night. Like I said, seven of eight of Gonzaga's rotation players were mentioned at the beginning for the balanced scoring. He was not one of them. He only shot two for seven for the game, one for four on three. But he did have a couple of steals and a really nice block shot. It was a, it was probably one of the best defensive games that I've seen him play. He, he didn't play much in the second half, which is great. Gonzaga had the ability to sit him down and play more of Nolan Hickman, more of Hunter Salas, which is something I called for before the game, hoping they would do that. That was the case in this one. Nembhard really good defensively. Looked fine offensively. He didn't make a bunch of mistakes. Obviously, no turnovers. It's excellent for him. So even though he wasn't one of the primary scorers, even though he didn't pop out on the box score, really nice game from him. And Nolan Hickman, three for four from three and zero turnovers. What an incredible freshman season this young man is having. We haven't even got to conference play yet. And he's so confident. He's so smooth. He's so He has so much poise. It's, it's been a really, really nice season for him already. And I think as he continues to get better, he's going to be an absolute threat all across the board in conference play. All right, second segment. We're going to take a look at the five things I set out to watch in this game, how they came together. Before we get there, though, let's talk about today's sponsor, Built Bar. Built Bar is the best tasting protein bar ever, plain and simple. It's a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. Bilt Bar has nine delicious flavors, including some all-time favorites like raspberry, mint brownie, peanut butter brownie, coconut, and my personal favorite, salted caramel. Of course, Bilt Bar is not only great tasting, they are healthy too. Most Bilt Bar flavors have 17 grams of protein, 130 calories, and only 4 grams of sugar. Nine amazing flavors, all tasty and all healthy. Go to BiltBar.com now and use promo code LOCKED15 and you'll get 15% off your first order. That's BuiltBar.com, promo code LOCKED15, for 15% off your first order. All right, segment two, still Andy Patton, still locked on Zags, still talking about Gonzaga's final non-conference game against North Alabama, a commanding victory in front of a quiet crowd at 2 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon. I, For those of you who listened to my previous episode discussing this game, previewing it, I talked on five things that I was going to be watching for specifically. Now here in the second segment, I want to discuss those five things, how they kind of came to fruition in this game and what it means for Gonzaga going forward. The first thing I discussed was how Gonzaga's three-point shooting looks and does the hot shooting continue? Obviously, we recall against Texas Tech, they looked outstanding shooting the basketball from beyond the arc. They carry that over into a great performance against Northern Arizona. I have been pretty staunchly adamant 
on this show that Gonzaga is a bad three-point shooting team who will occasionally have good games. I want to be clear. I don't want to be right about that. I would be quite happy if this team kind of proved me wrong. This game was not a step in that direction. They shot seven for 23 on threes, which is 30.4%. Not the worst three-point shooting game they've ever had, but 30% is probably not going to get it done. Nolan Hickman and Rasir Bolton combined to shoot five for seven, which is outstanding. Two of your most reliable outside shooters getting it done. The rest of the team shot two for 16, which is 12.5%. They're just not consistent. They're just not a consistent three-point shooting team. It's been discussed at nauseum by major media reporters by prominent news outlets by myself by other people who cover this team it's just they're 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 not a consistent three-point shooting team they have nice games like they did against tech like they did against northern arizona they have players who are capable of being good three-point shooters we've seen it with rasir bolton has been shooting excellent this year he's well over 40 percent. he's a player who was not a 40% three-point shooter at Penn State or at Iowa State. He was 36% at Penn State. He was below that both his seasons at Iowa State. Part of that was he was relied upon as the primary ball handler and the best player on those teams. It's difficult to shoot threes well when you're the focal point of the opposing team's defense. So seeing him improve has been excellent, and I do think it is very possible that his development into a 40 plus percent three-point shooter sticks. Nolan Hickman is a guy who was about 31, 32 percent coming into this game. I think he's going to improve as a three-point shooter as well. He showed it in this game going three for four. But again, the rest of the team just wasn't there. Strother one for four. Again, not horrible, doesn't kill you, but He's a guy shooting 39% to go one for four hurts. Chet Holmgren didn't knock either of his down, even though I thought they were good looks. Anton Watson missed the took the attempt he made. Andrew Nempard didn't shoot it well. Just not a consistent outside shooting team. They're going to have more games like this. The games that they have where they shoot 30-ish percent, 29%, somewhere in there, they're going to need to rely on other things. Fortunately, they have the ability to do that because they have Chet Holmgren and Drew Timmy and a very aggressive Anton Watson because their guards are elite at finishing around the rim. This is the best two-point shooting team in the country. So they don't need to rely on the three-point shot. It was great against Tech. They needed it that game. They didn't really need it against Northern Arizona, but man, was it fun to see them do that. But I maintain that this team is going to have games like this. They're going to struggle. They're probably going to have more games like this than they are against Texas Tech. I hope I'm wrong, but that's kind of just the belief that I have. They're fortunate that they can rely on other ways to score the basketball, and they're very, very good defense to keep them in games even when the outside shooting is not there because more often than not, it's not going to be there. The next point that I had in this game was more Hunter Salas, and we got that in a major way in this game. Not only was Salas the first guard off the bench, he was the first player off the bench. He came in before Anton Watson, before Nolan Hickman. Granted, it was only about a minute or so before those two guys came in, but that seems intentional to me that Mark Few put him in first. He played a lot in the second half. I kind of mentioned I thought this might be a game where we see a little bit less of Andrew Nempart and Rasir Bolton as just kind of give them a little bit longer break leading into conference play, of course, now without the game against San Diego, which we'll talk about in the third segment. The game, be- the break becomes even longer for these guys. Still really nice to see more of Hunter Salas. He finished with eight points, five rebounds, one assist, and one nice blocked shot. He did have the four turnovers. Talked about that already in the first segment. Not a whole lot more to say there. A couple of them were just dumb freshman mistakes. A couple of them were just turnovers. They happen. You know, very few players are are completely uh, 
completely impervious to turning the basketball over. Salas is a young freshman. He's a very excitable young man. He plays with a ton of energy and passion and heart. Those are the kind of players who are going to turn the ball over periodically. You'd like to see him happen less than four times a game, certainly, especially in a game where he only played, I think, I think about 20 minutes. I'm not sure exactly, but again, something that's going to improve as time goes on. He looked excellent on defense as always. He's an outstanding defensive player. His hands, his ability to knock the basketball away, like strip it from guys at certain situations and also just knock away passes. He has outstanding hand-eye coordination. He has big hands. He has quick instincts. He's There is a part, an element of defense that is natural. Whether it's just your physical size, you know, your your length of your arms, the size of your hands, things like that. Whether it's just instincts, things like that are just kind of innately part of who you are. Some players are capped at how good they can be defensively. Some players are naturally better defensively. Hunter Salas is one of those guys. You can just tell watching him play how comfortable he is on that side of the floor, how capable he is on that side of the floor without having to be taught a bunch of things. He's just good at playing defense. Uh, 0 for 2 on 3 is the other thing that's been discussed uh, frequently. It was, it was discussed a lot on Mailbag Monday as his outside shooting. Uh, these were both good looks. They were good attempts. He didn't force bad shots. He, you know, They weren't desperation threes. He just didn't knock them down. I think we'll see him improve upon that as the year goes on. 1 for 10 now to start his career, but again, 10 attempts is a pretty minuscule sample size. So hopefully it starts to even out as the year goes on. The next thing I wanted to talk about was the young bigs. We did see both Caden Perry and Ben Gregg a fair amount in this one. Ben Gregg came in at the under-12 media timeout in the second half. Caden Perry came in at just above the eight-minute media timeout in the second half. Gregg finished with three boards, two assists, and a block, but he was 0 for 4 from the field and 0 for 2 from the free throw line, so didn't get himself into the points column in this one. I thought he looked pretty good other than obviously missing six shots, which is not what you want. Uh, He looked better on defense. He was more aggressive, certainly. He's still got some work to do on that end of the floor, though, quite frankly. He's a step slow a little bit. He's got to work on his footwork, getting in the right position, not using his hands or his arms to try to block shots. Things that young bigs just tend to struggle with. Nothing that is very alarming on that end, but he, you know, if he has too many games where he doesn't make any of his shots and also still looks a little raw on defense, you can understand why he's not getting a ton of playing time just yet. But he's very young, and he will almost certainly get more time as the conference season goes on and be prepped to be really good next year. Caden Perry, most of what I said (laughs) applies to him. He did finish with two points on a nice dunk on a really well-executed pick-and-roll uh, he he came up, he set the screen, turned, rolled to the basket. <laughs> Northern North Alabama, excuse me, got caught in the middle. They they just they didn't play the pick and roll very well. The the guard went with stayed with Hickman. The the big man stepped up to into Hickman. Hickman immediately made the pass. Caden Perry one dribble throws down a two handed dunk. It was a great play, a great read by Perry, a great pass by Hickman. All of that good stuff. Other than that, I I didn't I didn't think Perry had an excellent game. He looked he he plays so hard. It's really hard to to criticize him because he goes out there and he plays with reckless abandon. You can tell he's sprinting all the time. He's got a motor unlike almost any player I've ever seen in a Gonzaga uniform. But more often than not, it seems to be a negative in some situations at least. Defensively, he's still rough. He he closed out too early on a shooter who just blew right past him for an easy lay-in. That's the kind of stuff, you know, that needs to get cleaned up. It will. 
I'm not thinking that, you know, if he's a senior and he's still blowing, he's still letting dudes blow past him because he's running out on shooters too fast. Mark V won't stand for that. He won't let him play as a senior if that kind of stuff is still happening. I'm sure that it'll get ironed out in time. He also is a little bit further behind developmentally because he missed a couple of games with the back injury. So there's still elements of his game that will improve as the year goes on. I did think he looked solid offensively. He was uh, posting up, trying to establish position. He looked good there. He he was knew when to get out of the way, when to clear out, when to try to establish position. Defensively, still got some work to do on that end of the floor, but I think will be good. He's too athletic and too hardworking to not get very good on that end of the floor. It just may not happen uh, anytime super soon. He's still got some work to do. The next one was Anton Watson and his hot streak. We already talked about Anton Watson having an outstanding season. Coming into this game, he'd had four outstanding games in a row. You can mark it five after knocking down his first double-double of his career, even after missing six shots. To still get a double-double shows how aggressive he's been offensively, how good of a distributor he's been passing the basketball, and, of course, how great he remains on the defensive end of the floor. So we can move past that one. The last one in my notes was give me some Martinez. I wanted to see Martinez Arlauskas in this one. You kind of know about when he's going to come into the game. He's been coming in around the same time as Matthew Lang, usually followed by Will Graves and Joe Few, the other two walk-on players. So Arlauskas has been kind of playing walk-on minutes. That was the same situation last year. I feel bad for the kid. He's a really hardworking young man. Came in as a high-profile recruit, was you know the, the highest-rated recruit in the country of Lithuania, was a top 150 recruit just nationally by by most outlets that track recruiting. Now he just has, is not a rotation player on this team at all. He came in at the 320 mark, had a nice take to the rim, but didn't finish it. But then later uh, on a, I, I can't remember if it was a long rebound or if it was a turnover, but Joe Few got the ball, made the pass down the floor to Martinez Arlauskas, who finished with the left hand while getting fouled. Drew Timmy exploded on the sideline. I exploded on my couch. It was the most excited I have been about a shot this season. I love Martinez Herlauskas. I knew I was going to talk about him today because he was one of my one of my five things to watch. So I was excited to have an actual play to talk about. He missed the free throw, which is a bummer. Would have been nice to get three on the board instead of just two, but still a nice finish for him. Uh, good to see the crowd and everybody kind of give him some love for that because he's a player who's worked really, really hard to get his opportunities, and it was nice to see him take advantage of one today. All right, that wraps up this game and Gonzaga's non-conference slate. Moving into the third segment, we're going to discuss the cancellation of Thursday's game, what that could mean for the Zags going forward. Before we get there, though, let's talk about today's sponsor, Bet Online. Folks, BetOnline is back and better than ever. BetOnline has a new web interface for the start of the NBA and college basketball seasons and features more props, odds, and lines than ever before. BetOnline remains your number one spot for all of the basketball and football action this season. Head to our new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code LOCKEDON to receive your bonus. From basketball, football, NHL, boxing, and UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all of your favorite sports. Alright, segment three, still Andy Patton, still locked on Zags, and the non-conference slate for the Gonzaga Bulldogs is over. We knew it would be a tough one. They came out of it with two losses, which all things considered, 
far from terrible. We knew that UCLA and Texas would be tough games, but Gonzaga took care of business pretty easily in those two. We knew that Duke and Alabama would be tough games. That ended up being the reality as they lost both of those, came back and responded with a nice win over Texas Tech. Now they're heading out into conference play. Unfortunately, the conference slate is not starting on Thursday as it was supposed to because the University of San Diego is on a COVID pause, the first of what will potentially be multiple WCC cancellations, or I should say postponements. The WCC is trying to avoid actually canceling basketball games. Uh, It's a really messy situation that the entire NCAA is currently in right now, not just with basketball, but of course the end of the college football season and bowl games, which has been a significant issue where teams have been unable to find opponents at the last minute. Washington State was kind of stuck waiting, hoping they'd be able to find a game very recently. It's it's been a huge issue, Uh, obviously, because of the Omicron variant, most notably uh, COVID-19 has caused so many more positive tests to crop up in ways that I don't think the NCAA was really expecting this to be such a significant problem, obviously, because so many players, so many coaches, everybody is vaccinated. Many of them are vaccinated and boosted. The effects of the vaccine are not as dramatic, certainly, or excuse me, the effects of the virus are not as dramatic. We are not seeing hospitalizations, deaths, things like that. Uh, Obviously, college athletes were likely going to not, not see a lot of that as it was, but now what is happening is we are still seeing a lot of positive tests. Omicron is far more spreadable than the in- initial, what we saw from this disease initially back in March of 2020. So we're seeing a lot more people have the disease, but less they're less likely to spread it if they're vaccinated. They're certainly less likely to be symptomatic, all of that. I'm not an infectious disease expert. I do not pretend to be an infectious disease expert. But fortunately for the college sports landscape, The infectious disease experts, the people at the CDC, have now said that they believe that a five-day quarantine period for people who test positive for the variant for Omicron is is acceptable as opposed to a 10-day waiting period. When that eventually kind of makes its way into college basketball and teams start utilizing that information, or conferences, I should say, start utilizing that information. Hopefully that means we will see less cancellations as the year goes on or forfeitures or postponements or whatever term the teams are using or the conferences are using to try to bypass getting rid of some of these games. I feel awful for San Diego. This is a team that went 3-11 last year. They played 14 games last season. Gonzaga, it's... Worth remembering how fortunate Gonzaga was to have so few of their games impacted by COVID-19 last year. They had some, obviously, the Baylor game early in the year ended up probably being a pretty significant cancellation for them because they were not as prepared for what Baylor was going to do in the national championship game. Got down really early in that game and unfortunately never recovered. So losing that game hurt probably with with no disrespect to the Toreros. You could probably make an argument that the Gonzaga losing that game was more significant than any of the games that San Diego was unable to play last year. But I still feel bad for this team for only getting 14 games last year, now dealing with another COVID pause that's going to cost them at least two games, potentially more as well. For the WCC, it's not the only game that got canceled. Santa Clara versus Pacific was scheduled for Thursday as well, and that game is not going to be played. I think... Hopefully the first kind of stretch right outside or right at the start of the play is when we're going to see the majority of this because student-athletes are coming back from Christmas break. They were with their family, with their friends. 
maybe out at the hometown bars potentially, and just more likely to get exposed to it. Again, I don't think that we're seeing a lot of players coming back and showing a, a bunch of symptoms of being really ill. They're coming back, they're getting tested because that's just the team's policy is to test these players and finding out that they're positive. It's an interesting spot, and I don't know the answer. I'm not going to pretend that I do know the answer here, but one could make an argument that if the players are not symptomatic, which we know if they're not symptomatic, that they're not as likely to be spreading the variant. It does not mean that they cannot. I think it's important to note that as well. You could have uh, have COVID, have the Omicron variant in your system and spread it to other people, even if you are not symptomatic. It is important to note that, but your the the time that you are contagious is lower. We do know that. And again, if you're only spreading it to other very healthy student athletes for the most part, it's not as likely to cause significant problems. Again, I understand every side of this. Clearly, if a player gets the Omicron variant from one of his teammates, goes, hugs his grandmother, his grandmother gets sick, that could, you know, that's, that's, that's those are obviously worst case scenarios and things that the NCAA should absolutely be thinking about and every individual team when they're determining how often they want to test their players. These are things they need to be thinking about. But having tons upon tons of games canceled for 99% very healthy players testing positive for a virus that is probably going to be out of their system within a couple of days, something needs to change. Hopefully, the things that will change are the CDC making these new recommendations, which will now allow teams to feel more comfortable only having a five-day waiting period when players are isolated. That alone should significantly change, alter the number of games impacted by COVID-19 this season. Beyond that, I think we're starting to see the ACC went ahead with this. I think other conferences will go ahead with trying to avoid canceling games and or, or causing forfeits because what we saw is they, they put in these policies to cause to kind of try to pressure teams into getting more vaccinations which wasn't a bad thing but causing teams to, if they were unable to field a full team to forfeit as opposed to just postponing the game or just canceling the game off the schedule an actual forfeit where you get charged with a loss now because of the omicron variant we're starting to see teams get charged with forfeits in situations where they their entire team is vaccinated and now all of a sudden they have to forfeit a game that doesn't seem right so i think we're going to start to see some policies change it has been disappointing but not surprising to see Mark Emmert and the NCAA not step up in any sort of tangible significant way as this has happened. We've seen tons of great elite games get canceled the day before, hours before we've seen student athletes travel across the country on what should be time they could be spending with their families. They travel all the way across the country to find out their games not being played and the NCAA is is doing nothing to prevent this. And it's not entirely surprising to me. Unfortunately, the NCAA under Emmert's leadership has frequently been kind of taken the policy of just waiting and not really doing anything and forcing the the committees uh, on for each conference to make decisions themselves as opposed to actually having some kind of overarching uh, decision-making coming from the, d- the top. So I'm not surprised. Uh, that puts a little bit more onus on the WCC to step up and say, hey, this is the policy that we're going to put in. We're going to avoid forfeits. We're going to try to limit teams to only five-day waiting periods. We're going to 
I don't want to say encourage teams to not take tests, but maybe encourage teams to focus more on treating symptomatic players and not as much on the asymptomatic players. It's a messy situation. We are still at a point in in history where even though COVID-19 has been around for close to two years now in the United States, we don't know a ton about it. It's impossible to know a ton about a virus like this. And so we're still learning and the CDC is still learning and changing their recommendations, which is a good thing. We want them to be adapting and learning and changing and growing. And we as a society, and specifically in this context as the NCAA and the conference, uh, the conference leaders, leadership needs to figure out how to respond to those changes, those adaptations, and do what's first and foremost the safest for the student-athletes and their immediate family and friends and fans, but also what is going to continue to put the product out onto the field. Because the NCAA is still a business. They are still attempting to make money. And these cancellations are not only upsetting for fans who would like to see their team and for the players who you know went to school to play basketball and are now not getting the opportunity to do so, but it is also a consumer product. And it's not being consumed when the games are being canceled. It's upsetting for the fans. It's upsetting for the players. It's upsetting for the shareholders, everybody who is involved in this, which is goes back to my previous point, why it's so frustrating to not see any leadership from the NCAA stepping up and saying, this is what we're going to do. Hopefully they're just gathering more information and they are intending to step up and give some kind of directive from the top. My guess is they're just letting the conference decision makers do that themselves, which in which case, hopefully Gloria Navarez and the WCC will step up and come up with a policy that is safe for the student athletes and the fans who go to the games, but also still allows the majority of basketball games to be played. Because all we want, we want to see Gonzaga play basketball. That's what we want. We're fortunate that at this point in the year, only two games, the game against the University of Washington earlier this month, and now the game against San Diego, tentative or initially scheduled for the 30th. We're lucky those are the only two games that have been canceled. Hopefully, we will not see any more cancellations as the year goes on. But something is going to need to change, whether it's league-wide or conference-wide, in order to prevent more cancellations from happening. All right, tomorrow is going to be a full Andy Locks episode grading listener-submitted hot takes. Of course, we were going to preview San Diego, but we're not going to do that now. So get me your hot takes about this team. We'll talk about them on Thursday's show. Friday is going to be a preview of Loyola Marymount, which is who Gonzaga plays on Saturday. That will finish off the week. All, of course, right here on the Locked on Zags podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Podcast links will also be posted on Twitter at Locked on Zags and on my personal Twitter account, which if you are not following, you can find it at ScoreZagsScore. Finally, thank you again to those of you who made this your first listen of the day. Now is a great time to make your second listen of the day, the Locked on Bets podcast. Locked on Bets is your daily one-stop shop for all of your sports gambling needs. Locked on Bets is hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling. All right, thank you all for listening and go Zags.